Sam Keen is the best-selling author of six books. The Ice Pick Surgeon is out today. We are so excited to have him on the show. Sam, thank you for joining us on Poured Over. Can we talk about the subtitle for the Ice Pick Surgeon, please? This is a whopper of a subtitle. <laughs> there, there's a lot in there. It's piracy, murder, what, else, what other crimes are listed there? Yeah, murder, fraud, sabotage, piracy, and other dastardly deeds perpetrated in the name of science. Yes. That's a lot. It is a lot. I guess my books have had kind of uh, meaty subtitles, but this mm-hmm. one's a little more daring than the other ones, or it goes into a different place, I guess. Pirates, Nazis, Thomas Edison, mad paleontologists, and I really, the paleontologists really got my attention, and we need okay. to spend some more time with them. Murderers, grave robbers, scientists, spies, and that's really just the start of what this book is about. Now, arguably, they're all advancing science, absolutely, but really some terrible stuff does happen in this book. It's a little different from your earlier books in that it's a little more intense and a little darker. You still find the humor, you still find the entertainment, but what brought this book on? I mean, I guess it's sort of the fascination we all have with true crime. There's a Mm -hmm. reason why that genre uh, has this sort of lurid fascination to it. And this is sort of a scientific take on that. Mm And that is about scientists who got obsessed with some topic or some idea. And then they just took things way, way too far trampling ethical boundaries and often committing crimes in the name of science. And I was really fascinated by kind of the double edge there in that we normally think about the pursuit of knowledge, uh, science in general, as a good thing. And in vast majority of cases, it is. But for these people, the obsession just got the better of them. And again, they took things way, way too far and committed these horrible crimes in pursuit of their science. And that sort of differentiated it, in my mind at least, from kind of normal everyday crime, which is often done for grubby reasons. People lose their temper or they're greedy or something like that. Here, in many cases, there was a nugget there where they were trying to advance knowledge or do something like that. It's just that they became unbound from sort of normal ethical uh, strictures, and this was the result. You cover a couple of hundred years of world history in this book. Who showed up first? Which which was the story that said, oh, wait, I can build a book around? I'd been kind of collecting string about different crimes for a while. I'd, I'd been interested in this for, for quite a bit. I think it was maybe the first chapter that really made me think, okay, there could be something here where I could put it together, a bunch of them. That's a chapter about William Dampier, who is mm-hmm. the pirate uh, that you mentioned, where essentially he was from a fairly poor family and went abroad to the Americas and fell in love with natural history there, decided he wanted to see more of the rest of the world, but due to his poverty, his straightened circumstances, basically his only option to see more of the world at that point was to become a pirate. So that's what he decided to do and just went buccaneering around the world in order to go to new ports, see new animals, see new plants, things like that. So that was his solution at the time was to become a pirate. And he was also one of Charles Darwin's inspirations. He published a couple of books when he got back to the UK and Darwin read at least one of them, if not both, correct? Yeah, Darwin was a big fan of William Dampier. He sort of chuckled over his misdeeds. He called him old Dampier in his notes and was kind of laughing over the fact that this guy became a pirate or Charles Darwin came from much better circumstances. Mm -hmm. So he could sort of afford to go gallivanting around the world for a few years. But he was a big fan of uh, William uh, Dampier. And as far as just pure observation, Mm -hmm. there are few people in history who had the sort of great eye that Dampier did. 
really able to capture amazing, amazing details. He introduced dozens of words into the English language, the first descriptions in uh, Europe of a lot of phenomenon. He was really, really an amazing observer. But he was also a pirate. He did a lot of bad things to essentially finance his habit. He's the first example in this book of how practicing science is like telling a story. You've got a beginning, a middle, and an end. The stakes are pretty high. Mm -hmm. You've got good guys and you've got bad guys. So how did you figure out what the structure of the rest of this book was going to be like? It moved kind of chronologically, not totally, but sort of chronologically from earlier times to later times. There was a bit of thematic clustering as well in that early science, there was a lot of focus on natural history. Later science was a little more focused on medicine, things like that. So a bit thematic and a bit chronological was the the basic uh, structure. I'm going to quote you for a second. There's this really great line that you have. Science is something larger. It's a mindset, a process, a way of reasoning about the world that allows us to expose wishful thinking and biases and replace them with deeper, more reliable truths. Considering how vast the world is, there's no way to check every reported experiment yourself and personally verify it. At some point, you have to trust other people's claims, which means those people need to be honorable, need to be worthy of trusting. Moreover, science is an inherently social process. Could you riff a little bit on what you mean when you say science is an inherently social process? Yeah, I think when we're kind of growing up and going through school, we think about science in terms of science class, which is there's a bunch of facts we have to memorize if we want to understand the water cycle or how our heart and lungs work, things like that. But when you're an actual practicing scientist, it is more about generating new knowledge. And it's a social process because in my mind, at least, science doesn't really count until it gets out there in the world. It needs to go to other people. They need to check it. They need to weigh in on it. So it is an inherently social process, which means that it's about human beings interacting with each other. And that's one thing that I I don't know if I would have consciously thought about that before writing this book, just how important those human relationships are in science. I think in all of my books, I talk about the fact that scientists are human beings and that there are heroes and villains. There's conflict and drama. The joys and tears are things I really try to bring out. And I think I hopefully did that in this book as well. But I had thought less about how science itself is a human process. And the fact that if you are cutting ethical boundaries, committing crimes, things like that, you are damaging science itself and the trust that people put in science, which is really its greatest asset. So in my mind, I think kind of one of the conclusions that I came to was that in many cases, doing unethical science is inherently bad science. And Mm -hmm. you end up costing yourself in the long run by, by cutting ethical corners in the short run. How long did this book take? This was about two years or so, but as I mentioned, I've been sort of collecting some of Uh these stories uh, for a while before that. How did you decide who was going to make the cut then? You cover the Unabomber. You cover a case in Massachusetts that was very, very recent with a lab scientist who was faking results and with terrible consequences. There's a lot that went into this. Yeah, um, it's just fun for me to do that kind of research, just Uh kind of throw myself in and dive in and just find the stories there. I really enjoy that process of doing that. 
I mean, as far as which stories to include, I wanted to cover kind of a wide variety of sciences. I mean, I could have done a whole book about lapses with medical science, mm -hmm. and I do cover a fair amount of medical science in there, but I really wanted to expand it. I wanted some natural history, some physics, some psychology, different things mm -hmm. like that. So I wanted some variety in there. And there were a couple cases. I didn't want all of the book to be sort of gloomy stories. I wanted a few cases that were a bit more lighthearted like the paleontologist that you mentioned, right. which was kind of more of a fun story in that it wasn't people getting hurt. It was them kind of sabotaging each other. I have to say it was paleontologists in the Wild West. These two are duking it, they're East Coasters duking it out over dinosaur bones in the American West in the 1800s. And it is, someone should turn this into a film. It's absolute comedy gold. I mean, one of them puts the dinosaur's head on the tail instead of the neck. It's, they don't know what's going on. Just th yeah, thoroughly embarrassed for it. Yeah, it was two paleontologists named Cope and Marsh. Mm -hmm. They were rivals on the East Coast, as you said. Kind of started off as friends, but their characters came out pretty quickly when they started backstabbing each other, sabotaging each other, ripping each other apart in the press of the day. Mm -hmm. And then things really got bad, as you said, when they went out to the American West, where there were, at one point in the book, there, there was a cabin that someone made mm -hmm. just out of dinosaurs dinosaur bones. There were that many old bones just sitting around where a shepherd, I think it was, built a cabin just out of dinosaur bones. So there were bones everywhere out there for the taking. And these two went out there at a time when not a lot of scientists had gone out there. And they're really the ones who made dinosaurs the sort of glamour species that we know today. Because before this, they were sort of these obscure lizards. They were kind of big and, maybe, you know, a few scientists knew about them. But nowadays, you know, when every kid goes to a museum, the first thing they run up to see, they want to see is the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that goes back to these two paleontologists. And then on top of all that, they absolutely hated each other and would do everything they could to try to destroy, discredit, or ruin the other person. So that story was a lot of fun to write. You're right. I think it would make for a great movie. Do you have a favorite story in this book, though? You do cover a lot of ground. And I am hinting at things because obviously we're releasing this episode as the book comes out. So we really do want people to discover these stories for themselves. But do you have a favorite story? The Martian Cope one does come to mind. I'm always kind of a sucker for Manhattan Project and atomic bomb stuff. Right. So the, the espionage about that going on at the Manhattan Project, I really mm -hmm. like, especially because it highlights a character, kind of a key character, mm -hmm. a guy named Harry Gold, who was one who actually took the documents from the spies in the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos and gave them to the Soviets. He was the mm -hmm. courier. And he was also wrapped up in the Rosenberg uh, executions as well. So he played kind of this pivotal role in history, but he's often been overlooked. And so that story kind of stands out to me as one, like a, a character I really got invested in. He's a sad character in some ways, sympathetic character in other ways. In other ways, though, he did some pretty bad things. So I think a lot of characters in the book are like that, where you can sympathize with them on the one hand, but on the other hand, in the end, they really did some awful things. And the other one that comes to mind is sort of the title story of the ice pick surgeon, Walter Freeman, who was the mm -hmm. notorious uh, lobotomist of the 1950s. And he's another case where at the beginning, you can kind of see 
why he was doing what he was doing. It's just that his ambition got the better of him Mm -hmm. and he sort of got unmoored from any ethical boundaries that he had at the beginning and went on to become one of the most notorious doctors in history after that. And you mentioned obsession earlier in the interview, but a lot of this too is these people who just want to make sure that they make a mark, that they're remembered, that they win. And really some of them go really off sides. And yet we do live with some of the information they were able to gather. I mean, how do we how do we reconcile that? It's a tough ethical question. I don't know that there is a good or a straightforward answer, especially if you want to talk in generalities. I think it has to depend on the individual cases. Mm-hmm. But you're right, there are circumstances where people committed ethical breaches, if not crimes, and produced information that we probably would not have been able to get had they not done that. And then, as you said, the question is, what do we do with that information? And a lot of people think, you know, we should just ignore it, bury it. There's no good use of that information because it was tainted. They compare it to a criminal case where if there's a crooked cop who gets information, breaks into someone's house without a search warrant, something like Mm -hmm. that, a court would immediately throw that out. And that's a good analogy in some ways, but in other ways, maybe it's not as good of an analogy. If we could Mm -hmm. save lives with that information, should we just ignore it? We wouldn't run that experiment to get that information nowadays, but if we still have that information, should we ignore it? And I don't think there is a good answer. And I didn't, didn't try in the book to come up with a definitive answer as much as just lay those cases out there and kind of get discussion going about. This is your sixth book about sort of the hidden history of science. We've done the atmosphere in Caesar's The Last Breath, and you've done the Bastard Brigade talking about the plot to foil Hitler's attempt to get the atomic bomb. And you've written about chemistry and genetics. How did you get started as a science writer? Well, I started as a physics major in college, Mm -hmm. and then I got about three years or so into that, and then realized that uh, science was not, it was not going to be in my future. I still loved the classes. I enjoyed them. I did well in them. It was labs mostly. The labs Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. kind of killed me in that uh, I was clumsy. I was not very good at labs. I would break things. And I just really didn't enjoy being in the lab and kind of tinkering with the equipment, troubleshooting it. Other people in my labs, they really liked that kind of work, but I just hated it. I found it very, very frustrating. And so then it was kind of a scary moment where I had to figure out what I was going to do with myself. I'd wanted to be a scientist for so long. I almost didn't know who I was anymore if I wasn't going to be in the lab doing this work. And so I started thinking about it and started thinking about what do I really like about science? What did I really enjoy about it? And in a lot of ways, the things that stood out to me were some of the historical stories, the Mm -hmm. historical, the the people involved really is what I really liked about it. And I'd always been interested in books and reading and things like that. So I kind of went to the other side of the campus and started taking some English classes, eventually got an English major and decided I was going to write about science and just kind of see what happened. Started off in magazines and newspapers, things Mm -hmm. like that. 
And then books, I think, were a better fit for me because I had a little bit more room. I could be a bit more lively with the stories, I think. It wasn't just kind of straightforward presenting. I could go into people's lives and talk about um, the good things they did, the bad things they did. So I really enjoyed the freedom that a book gave. And it's, yeah, it's been a, a, a great journey so far. And footnotes. You really like footnotes, which I appreciate as a reader because I do feel like you're wrestling with some really big ideas in this book in terms of ethics and morality. And it was nice to have the footnotes where I could just see you sort of laying out the rest of the argument in a way that I found very helpful. Okay, that's good to hear. I mean, the footnotes are kind of my compromise with myself. I have a very Mm -hmm. discursive mind in that Uh I love to wander. I love to jump from one topic Mm -hmm. to the other. But sometimes at some point you have to get back to the story. And so the footnotes are my compromise where I I can't bear to let it go. So I'll include it in the footnotes. It's not kind of dragging down the main story. But that's good to hear. I never know if people read them, if they notice them. This was the first time where the footnotes actually appear as footnotes as Mm -hmm. opposed to end notes notes in the back. I had people kind of clamoring. Readers were writing me messages that they didn't like flipping back and forth. So we're experimenting a little bit with this one. It's a very good experiment. I think you should keep it. And I do think too, that there are some readers who just prefer to stay on the page until they're done. And and there is, I'm one of the people who will go wherever I need to go to get the information, but it was kind of nice to just be able to slip into a footnote and be like, oh, right. Okay. That's not something I would have considered. Something I couldn't afford to let go was Mm -hmm. I mentioned in the pirate chapter how they had sort of a rudimentary healthcare plan mm-hmm, right. where if you lost an eye, they would pay you so many doubloons or pieces of eight or something. Or if you lost a leg, you got the, if you lost like your left leg, you got this much and it was different for an arm and stuff like that. And I just thought that was so fascinating, but I didn't want to drag down a whole paragraph writing mm-hmm. it. So a footnote's just a perfect place to park something like that. Just a little, little sparkle at the bottom of the page. And then we can move on with uh, the narrative mm-hmm. part of the story. I need to ask you a question about the appendix in this book, because I did have a moment where I was slightly terrified about the future after reading this. <laughs> you've, you've put in an appendix that's it's really the future of crime. It is, yeah. As I said, the book kind of moves chronologically, mm-hmm. uh, starting, it even starts with Cleopatra at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. It moves all the way forward to some very recent crimes that took place mm-hmm. in the 2010s. And then I thought, well, you know, what about looking ahead even farther into the future and wanted to talk about crimes possible with genetic engineering or computers or new crimes we might experience if we colonize other planets, things like that. And it was sort of a kind of a, a, a mental exercise and just kind of kind of letting your mind wander into dark places. Mm-hmm. That I wouldn't say that that is the vision of the future that I really think is going to come to pass. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think it's likely at all, but I think it's interesting to think about, if nothing mm-hmm. else. It's sort of like science fiction almost in a way. And I think it's good that we start thinking about these kind of things in that we are going to face some of these situations fairly quickly with genetic engineering. There are people born today who they use CRISPR technology to change their gene. So in some cases, this isn't as much in the future as something we are dealing with in the present, and we should be thinking about these things. And we all live with AI right now. And we do, yeah. It's, it's, a, mean, it's a little subtler, and we maybe don't, re- it's maybe a little bit more on the back end, but you're right. Also, I'm trying not to nerd out too hard, only because I don't want to give too much away. And I think uh, part of the joy of reading your work is is watching how the story unfolds. And it's like, you get to the end of a chapter in this book and then we roll into the next chapter. I'm like, oh, 
Okay. Like, and you, you feel a see, sense of foreboding or? Um, you can see the flow of the story and I'm always curious. It's not even foreboding. It's just like, where is this going? How does this connect? Ah, okay. And that's what I really appreciate. So I think it was actually with the appendix that I, it was just such a surprise that I was kind of like, oh, okay. I see where, where Sam is going with this and I understand, but at the same time, huh, not what I was expecting. Okay. That, that, I think it's a good, uh, a good thing. Yeah, it's definitely a good thing. What was the biggest surprise for you as you were writing this book? I think I thought I would struggle to find enough stories. I think that was part of it. That might have been part of the reason I had been sort of keeping in the back of my mind and thinking, you know, how many cases are there where there are going to be scientists involved in crimes? And of course, there are scientists who commit uh, sort of venal or grubby crimes, things like that. But I, I wondered if there was going to be enough to fill a book about scientists who, again, committed crimes in pursuit of knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, but once I started looking, I kind of followed, you know, footnote to footnote, whatever, just looked a little bit mm -hmm. deeper. It turned out there were plenty of stories and some I even had to sort of leave behind. Do you think you'll go back to the material that you left out of this book? Is there something else there or is it just you've written the book you wanted to write in this case? Maybe. I mean, I, I have a, a little podcast now, so I can always uh -huh. kind of jump back to it and do something like that. Yeah, maybe in the future I would like to revisit it. But I think this was the book that I had in mind at the start where I really wanted to not only explore these crimes, but the consequences for science in general, and especially how we're still dealing with some of mm -hmm. them in the present day. Like what? What's a good example we could give listeners without spoiling the story? There are stories in there about um, some horrific medical experiments mm -hmm. that still get brought up in terms of people not seeking medical care. You can tie some of them back to vaccine hesitancy. And a lot of them sort of foreshadow problems that we have even nowadays mm -hmm. with drug and vaccine trials in other countries. I talk about things going on during the coronavirus pandemic, talk about things like a malaria vaccine that mm -hmm. ran into some ethical issues uh, when they were trying to roll it out in Africa. So we kind of see these things going on even today. One of the things I think the book can do is provide a little bit more perspective and even talk about how we could have short-circuited it or kind of interrupted and maybe even prevented in some cases some of these problems from arising. So hopefully, I mean, it's sort of the old, if you don't know history, you're kind of condemned to repeat right. it. So I think that learning about these kind of things and realizing that these aren't sort of safely buried in our past, there's things that come up in different forms nowadays, but we still see those kinds of justifications and rationalizations in work nowadays. And consequences are real. Yeah, people in the book had their lives ruined. They died in some cases. So yes, the consequences are quite real. Who are some of the writers you turn to for inspiration, though? I mean, you're writing history, you're writing pop science. I'm a pretty voracious reader, so I, I mean, I, I just gobble up pretty much anything, but there are some writers who stand out, people mm -hmm. whose work I've enjoyed. Deborah Bloom is one. Mm -hmm. uh, Amy Stewart writes some great books. Let's see, Carl Zimmer is another one who stands out. I really like his work. Ed Young's another great writer. And... I mean, one book I could mention recently that I read that I really enjoyed, both for the humor and kind of the way it opened up my mind, was a book mm -hmm. called Evolution Gone Wrong. Basically, oh, wow. 
about the human body Mm -hmm. and all the ways it falls apart, essentially, based on our unique evolutionary history. Uh I think before that, I'd sort of thought of the human body as this kind of sleek Ferrari where we have, you know, this really well put together machine. And after that book, I started thinking about it as more like a jalopy, like barely holding it together, kind of getting down the street. It talks about how we have constant back pain because of the fact that we're on two feet, how we have constant eye strain, how our jaws, they aren't big enough to accommodate all our teeth, things like that. So that's one of those books I read and I was kind of jealous about, oh man, I wish I thought of that idea. It was a really eye-opening book. I really enjoyed that one. That sounds excellent. Can we talk about your sleep paralysis for a second, just, just to change sure. this? <laughs> Are you... So... I was going back into your backlist title, The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons. And there it is right in the introduction. You're like, well, I started thinking about this book because I have sleep paralysis. And I was like, I have to remember to ask Sam about this because you kicked off an entire book about brains and brain health and neuroscience because you were going through something really serious. I mean, it's not quite as serious as the the things in the book. It's a condition that people have, I don't know the, the best word for it exactly, but essentially it's the opposite of sleepwalking. So in sleepwalking, your body wakes up, but your mind is still asleep. Whereas in sleep paralysis, your mind wakes up, but your body remains asleep. And so you're lying there and you just cannot move. Sometimes you may be able to open your eye just a little bit or something like that, but essentially you are frozen there. And for me, the worst part has always been how my breath feels. Because your body's asleep, you're taking very shallow breaths, Mm -hmm. and they're much shallower than you would get if you were walking around and talking. So it feels like you're not getting enough air in your lungs, and it's a very, very uncomfortable feeling. And you essentially cannot get your body to move. No matter how hard you struggle or push or fight, you just cannot get your body to move. And it's, it's, it's a really, really awful feeling. And thankfully, it doesn't happen to me that often. I've uh-huh. learned not to sleep on my back. That's usually when it happens. But yeah, it, it, it's not a fun state to be in. But it got me thinking about how the brain works. Why is it happening? Things like mm-hmm. that. And when I looked into it, I realized that, oh, okay, what's happening is when you fall asleep and you start to dream, your brain releases chemicals mm-hmm. to the rest of your body that essentially paralyzes it temporarily. And that's a good thing in most cases, because if you're dreaming about you know, a werewolf running after you or mm-hmm. something, you don't want to suddenly jump up and start swinging your arms or fall off the bed mm-hmm. or whatever. It's a good thing we cannot move our bodies much, if at all, while we're dreaming. It's just that when people with sleep paralysis, there's this little malfunction where the spigot doesn't get turned off and those chemicals keep paralyzing our body, even though our mind has woken Mm -hmm. up. And to me, I thought, wow, that's really interesting that there's this condition out there, but it gives a good insight into how the brain works. And I started realizing that there are actually a lot of stories out there like that, where if you look at this disorder, it's unusual, it's strange, but if you look at the details, it gives an insight into how the brain works. That's kind of what the book does, is marches around the brain from part to part and tells you how the brain works based on these bizarre malfunctions, most of them much more bizarre than sleep paralysis. In general, when you're starting a book, though, are you starting with your own thesis or are you starting with a piece of the story? More with the stories. Yeah, definitely. Um, And usually a series of interconnected stories. Uh Uh Um, My previous books were more 
unified in the sense that it was about one type of science. So mm -hmm. a chemistry book, a genetics book, a neuroscience, uh, an atmospheric science book. This one does cover some different sciences. The mm -hmm. unifying theme is more the crimes and the misdeeds, things like that. But there is usually that unifying theme there. And it's a matter of me kind of collecting stories and saying, oh, you know, I have a few that kind of relate to this common theme or whatever. Maybe I should try to see if there's a book there. And sometimes there is, sometimes there's not. But that's part of the fun is to try to piece it together and figure out how they can fit together. Have you left books sort of midstream and said, oh, this isn't working. I'm going to go look at something else now. No, I've never abandoned a book partway through. Um, there's definitely always a discussion, a debate with your editors, your publishing house. Mm -hmm. so there's definitely been books I was kind of excited about that we ended up uh, not seeing eye to eye on that we kind mm -hmm. of went different directions on uh, what we thought about it. So we just went and found something else, but I've never been partway through and abandoned it for something mm -hmm. like that. So on average, though, are you looking at a couple of years per book? Usually, yeah. It depends a little bit on the nature of the book, you know, whether I have to visit some archives, something like that, right. whether there's going to be more of an in-person component where I'm actually going out and observing or whether it's, you know, more looking up scientific journals, historical stuff, things like mm -hmm. that. So, so far it's been one every about two or two and a half years. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite of your books? <laughs> I get that question a lot. And I always, I always turn it around, you know, uh, do people have favorite children and stuff like that? I, mean, I understand. I, just, I, I know I, they do. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a hard question to answer, first of all, because of how much you invest in the books, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. kind of emotionally. They are different books in some ways in that my first book, for instance, about the periodic table, mm -hmm. there's a story in there about every single element on the periodic table. Right. So there's a lot of information in there. There's a lot of quick cuts kind of jumping around from story to story. As I wrote different books, they got longer in the sense that the chapters got longer. It was a little bit more unified within each chapter, where I was often mm -hmm. telling a single story. Up to my book, The Bastard Brigade, which was a bit more like a novel, one continuous story, as mm -hmm. opposed to mm -hmm. a collection of thematic short stories. This book, The Ice Pick Surgeon, is a little different in that you get the kind of the illicit thrill of a true crime tale, which is something I'd never dabbled in before. And it was fun to try to write that. There's elements, again, of true crime. There's maybe a bit of mystery in there in mm -hmm. some cases. Two genres I really enjoy. So it was fun to try to write those. And I'm really pleased with how it came out. And you got to be a detective too, because aren't you piecing together material from different sources in order to figure out where it's going? Or in some cases, did you know what you needed the story to represent? And I just wanted to tell the story as truthfully uh -huh. and as entertainingly as I could. Yeah, in some cases, you're dealing with conflicting sources, things like that. So there's definitely an element of trying to piece together what actually happened there. So yeah, there's definitely a part of that when you're uh, working with incomplete or conflicting historical sources, especially. What's the one thing you really want readers to know about the ice pick surgeon? I think what I would hope people walk away with is that scientists really are human beings and they experience the same sort of joys and thrills that we do, but they can also sometimes turn into villains. And I think this comes across in the book, hopefully, that, you know, I'm a big fan of science. I love science. It's done far more good than bad in world history, but there are some scientific villains out there. 
And it's sort of fun to look at them, I think, in some mm-hmm. ways, that mm-hmm. thrill again. But I think that in some cases, there are some even darker deeds. And we need to be honest about that and be forthcoming about that and try to figure out why it happened and hopefully how we can prevent things like that from happening in the future. Do you have any theories? I talk about it in the book, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Kind of a few things that I think we could do. Mm -hmm. Some of them sound pretty bleeding obvious, but they Mm -hmm. don't always happen. Uh, That's something, one thing we can do is sort of have ethics in mind from the beginning, which again, seems obvious. But there's a study I talk about where they gave people two forms, essentially. They ran a psychological experiment. They had them do math problems for money based on how many problems they saw they got X amount of dollars. And then the real experiment started that they gave them this form, this fake tax form and said, okay, we want you to fill this out for tax purposes. And then there was a box on the form that said you had to sign it. And it said, basically, all the information reported here is accurate and true or whatever. And in half the cases, they put the box to sign the very beginning of the form before you filled any data out. The other half of the cases, they put it at the end of it and you signed at the end. Mm-hmm. Well, when they looked at the two groups, the people who signed first were far less likely to lie or cheat. And I think that has a, that there are good implications there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of why we swear witnesses in before they give testimony in court and not after. When you have ethics in mind at the beginning, mm-hmm. you're much more likely to be honest. There's a little catch on your conscience there. And it does work. We can't solve all problems with something Mm -hmm. like that, but there is something that works there. And so I think about it as using science, using psychology, social science, using good science to fight bad science. And I think there are things that we can do out there to greatly increase the chances of stopping this kind of stuff before it starts. So you've covered chemistry, you've covered genetics, you've covered neuroscience, you've covered the atmosphere, you've covered the atomic bomb, and now we've got the true crime version of science writing. What's next? I'm not sure yet. We were just trying to get this book to the publication date, and mm-hmm. we're finally here. And so now I think we're going to start looking at what's next. As I mentioned, I've been doing the podcast, been really enjoying uh-huh. that. And maybe the, if I look back, there's some sort of theme there that I could mm-hmm. pull something out of, but I'm not sure. I, I just kind of wanted to get this book done and then figure out what was going to be nice after that. We've covered a lot of ground without revealing too much about the new book because people just need to be delighted and surprised and shocked and amazed as they read this book. Did we miss anything about Ice Pick Surgeon? I don't think so. I think we covered all of the big things. And yeah, it was a fun book to write because I think it was a good mix of the stories, which I always try to emphasize the human side, but also getting to take a step back a little bit and talk Mm -hmm. about science in general, how it gets done, how that's different than in the past. So being able to work on both of those levels was was gratifying. I really enjoyed that process. Good. I'm glad to hear that. But also how much the science of the time depended on it and how in a lot of cases, the science callous that got on these people, all they suffered. I think it really opens it up in a way that, you know, statistics or things can't quite get at. Sam Keen, thank you so much for joining us. The new book is The Ice Pick Surgeon, Murder, Fraud, Sabotage, Piracy, and Other Dastardly Deeds Perpetrated in the Name of Science. It's out today and your podcast is The Disappearing Spoon. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. 
Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.